just wanted to say before I start that, and just thinking about the year, it really has been an incredible start to this year. It's been a wonderful start to this year. I think just the change that I've seen in the last four months in terms of the life of the church and what God's been doing in people's hearts is absolutely wonderful. Um, so I really want to encourage you, if um, you haven't been around or haven't been able to make all of Sundays, that you do get online and have a listen to what God has been speaking into the life of the church, because it is absolutely wonderful. And I, I do want to just pick out three things that I think have been highlights for me. The first is uh, Sean and Nola Dooley's ministry, uh, the week that he was here. Uh, they spoke largely into marriage, but it was an incredibly refreshing time for us as a church. And remember, he talked on the household of God and how to facilitate life in the household of God, and I, I found that personally very encouraging. And then Chris Vinant was with us and spoke about having encounters with God, which I also found incredibly refreshing personally and liberating. But without doubt, I have to say that the ministry of Michael Eaton has been, for me, profound. And I want to say that in terms of the nine years that we've been leading this church, very few people have had such a major impact. Well, I want to say, I do want to single him out and say that for me, he's the person that's had the most impact into the life of this church. And I'm not saying that to... Uh, puff him up or to curry favor in any way, I just want to say for me it has been a profound time. And so I want to encourage you, if you weren't around for um, those meetings, they are all online, every single one of them. His seven sessions that he did in terms of the doctrine of the local church, his two sessions that he did last week on Galatians have really, for me, just been such an encouragement. And I also just want to say that what I found so uh, wonderful to see is just in speaking to people over this last week, how many people have been impacted in a profound way and God has spoken to them by the Spirit, the Spirit of God simply through the preaching of the Word. And for me, that's incredibly encouraging, that when the Word of God is preached, something is released into the life of the church and people are changed. And so I want to encourage you that um, the messages that he preached in Galatians last week I started the week before just with an introduction. I'm going to carry on this morning with Galatians chapter 2. But I'm trusting that as we just talk through this book of Galatians, a week after week over the next couple of weeks, that God is going to bring increasing liberty and freedom into us as a people. And that's what we long for. We want to see God move in power. We want to see Him transform people's lives and liberate them into the freedom that He has for them. Amen. Just to let you know also, um, Nick is up in, in Dublin this weekend with Trevor. They're ministering into the church up in Dublin, which is a wonderful privilege for us to be able to release them and send them. And I also have just been talking this week with Bruce, just to let you know how his church plant is going. They are having such fun. They are having a great time. And they've had three or four really good meetings with a lot of visitors. And uh, so please just carry to, on, on to pray for them. They've had um, the blessing of getting a little church building, a Methodist church building, which has been largely unused for the last couple of years, and so they are meeting in that building, and God has really blessed them and opening some doors for them, and that's a wonderful thing. So their success is our success, and so let's enjoy what God's doing with them as well, and it's a great, great uh, privilege to see what God is doing in that little church. And so Paul is going to go in a couple of weeks just to take his home group and, and encourage them, and probably towards the end of April, beginning of May, I'm going to go and preach there and just uh, be part of what they're doing. It's wonderful, eh? It's wonderful to be able to go and, and facilitate something of a new church. Are you with me in Galatians? Great, here we go. 
I'm going to read the whole of Galatians chapter 2 and then um, make some comments out of that. And then we want to have a time of worship and let God minister by His Spirit. But uh, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, if your version is different from mine. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had just been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas which is Peter, another word for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Peter, or Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I remember this is Paul speaking about Peter, the spokesman of the church, of the early church, the spokesman of the disciples, the one who had lived with Jesus, who had ministered with Jesus. He opposes him to his face, for he stood condemned. Before, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Man, these are strong words from Paul. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to, Paul, I said to Peter before all of them, before them all, if you... Though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And this beautiful verse 15. We ourselves are Jews at birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant or a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live in God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ Jesus died for no purpose. Some of the emphasis is mine in terms of how I phrase things, but if you want a powerful, simple, um, pricey of what the gospel is, Galatians chapter 2 is there. <laughs> we are justified by faith in Christ, not by the law. And this, this, I want to just carry on from what Michael Eaton said last week, obviously, but this chapter really introduces a theme which had been present since the birth of the church. And this, in a nutshell, is it, that there were, the first Christians were Jews, obviously, but now Gentiles, people that were not Jews, are getting saved. And those Jews that had first come to salvation kept honoring and giving attention to the ceremonial law. That is, what food you eat, what ritual cleansing, how you wash your hands, all sorts of rules and regulations that uh, Jews kept. And on the other hand, these Gentiles that are saved, they have no understanding of the ceremonial law at all, and they take Christianity at face value, they take it as a pure faith, and they, they seek to live by Christ alone. And the, 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 the nutshell is simply that the ceremonial law was no longer necessary for those in Christ. And yet, it was not yet buried and done away with by Jewish believers. And part of that reason was Peter. Part of that reason was Peter, who was the apostle to the Jewish Christians, and he continued to observe the law, and he wanted others to do so as well. And for me... I was just thinking and chatting to Helen in the car, and let's go and have a look at Acts chapter 10, because Peter has this amazing revelation in Acts chapter 10, and I'm sure you know it well, but let's just read. He's in this house, Cornelius' house, and he has this vision. I'll just read, I'm reading now from the NIV, Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devoted and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor. Oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong portion. And it is. Oh, yeah, I'm getting there. It's just a long introduction. Um, now send men to Joppa to bring back a, name, a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was with one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So Peter has this vision, he has this dream, he has this revelation, and it says here in verse 11, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice said to him, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking Simon, who was known as Peter, if he was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have set them. I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to come, uh, told him to have you come to his house so that you could hear he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And so Peter goes down with them to Joppa. He arrives in Caesarea, takes him to uh, uh, Cornelius' house. And if you go down, um, Peter gets up and he, he tells the guy, uh, everyone in the house what he's experienced. And it says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who had the mess- heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, and they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they ought to be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus, and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And this is an amazing, amazing picture. Peter has this revelation, and God says, you are free to eat anything. All those things that were unclean under the law, God says to him, no, you can eat of those things. And so he has this understanding that God is speaking about the Gentiles. He has a revelation. But here, when we're reading the book of Galatians, written to the Galatians, some of the churches that Peter had been involved in, he had gone back to what his default setting was. His default setting was that he was Jewish and that he was still observing the law, even though he had had a vision in Acts chapter 10 that he was free from it. And my challenge to you, all of us in our lives, is that we don't give in to anything except the gospel of Christ. And sometimes life pushes you in and people have expectations and there's all these things that crowd in on us and yet the truth of what God is bringing us back to in the life of this church is the simplicity of the gospel. We need Jesus We don't need any form of the law. We don't need any legalism in our lives. We don't need those things to get people to behave in a certain way. What we need is the freedom of the gospel. We need the freedom of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I'm going to repeat this phrase over and over again. A Michael Eatonism. 
If you walk in the Spirit deliberately, you will fulfill the law accidentally. I love that. That was the most incredibly liberating thing for me. If we walk by the Spirit, we will fulfill the law accidentally. All the moral law, all the things that God wants us to walk in. We'll fulfill it accidentally. If you live by the Spirit, you won't want to lie. If you live by the Spirit, you will not commit adultery. If you live by the Spirit, you will not murder because Jesus, who leads you into all truth, would not lead you into those things. If you live by the Spirit, you will be free. Amen. That's good news. That's the gospel. And just a reminder of a couple of things about the law, all right? The law was temporary. The law was temporary. There was a time in history... When those who believed in Yahweh, the one true God, they didn't have the law. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those great fathers, the patriarchs, they didn't have the law. The law was given by Moses after all those men had lived. Yet they had fellowship with God. They were saved. They knew him, all the fathers, before the law was even given. So why does Moses give the law? Why does God allow the, the law to come through Moses? Because the people were about to move into the promised land. And the promised land was inhabited by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were into all sorts of perversions. They offered up their children. They burnt them in the fire. They had all sorts of sexual perversions that they were into. And so God gives the law to his people. And it says the law was added to keep them from sin. In other words... He was trying to put some things in place which would help them not to just become like the Canaanites. And so he gives the law to restrain them from falling into the same things. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, there were thousands, literally, there were 2,000 laws that they had to observe. 2,000 laws. And uh, I mean, I don't know how much of your life that must have just can you imagine how that must have consumed your life, just thinking about all these things you have to fulfill and not do this and do this? And remember, they had some that you should do and some that you should, you know, like the negative and the positive. I told you that they had, enough, they had one for every body part. Do you remember that? One for every body part. And then they had one, 365, one for each day of the year and all these things. But the law, as Michael pointed out last week, the law worked on the basis of fear that you were going to be punished. And if you did this, you would be fine. If you didn't do this, you would be punished. And so even little things, like if your children were rude to their parents, they would be punished by death. That would go down well in England right now, wouldn't it? All the p people on ASBO orders being rude to their parents. Under the old covenant, under the law, you'd be put to death. It's true. That's what the law says. We have a fridge at home, which is made by a Jewish company. And we, were, we liked the fridge. We didn't know it was made by a Jewish company, but it's made by a company called Fisher and & Paykel. And it has a Sabbath feature on the fridge. I'm not joking, it does. It has a Sabbath feature. And what it does, on, you can switch the Sabbath feature on. And what it does on, from Friday night to Saturday night, which is the Sabbath, it switches all the lights off in the fridge, but the fridge carries on working. Because you see, under the law, you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. So not even the fridge is allowed to work on the Sabbath. So you get around that. You get around that by pretending that actually the fridge is not working because the lights are not on. So we don't use that feature because we're not under the law. 
But when the Gentiles get saved, they know nothing of the law. No, absolutely nothing of the law. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. Because in fact, he's quite angry. He's angry with, with Peter. He's angry with Barnabas because they have fallen back from the truth of what the gospel is. And the gospel is this, is that we need Jesus. Nothing else. We need Jesus. You need Jesus Christ in your life. You need the power of his spirit in your life. You need nothing else. So what I would like to do then, let's go back to Galatians chapter 2, and I've divided it into four sections. The first 10 verses, 1 to 10, and then we're going to look at uh, 11 to 14, and we're going to look at 14 to 20, and 21 and 22, or 20 and 21. Just four sections. I'm going to make some brief comments out of those sections. But what Paul does in the first 10 verses is he gives a full account to the people of the doctrine that he preached to the Gentiles, to the churches in Galatia. He says, this is what I preach to you. And simply doctrine, this is a, a, a theological word. All doctrine means, it simply means teaching. Doctrine is teaching. In other words, he wanted, Paul wanted to, to uh, make the teachings about Jesus and his cross absolutely plain to everybody. All right? And then just so that you know what Gentiles are, Gentiles refers to anyone who's not, who's not a Jew is a Gentile. So I'm a Gentile. And so are most of you. Anyone who's Jewish born here. No, so all of us are Gentiles, all right? And from a Jewish perspective, everyone who was not born a Jew was ritually unclean. And to them, the sign that God gave them was that the men would be circumcised. And that, that was a, a picture that they were set apart from all the other nations, that they were ritually clean. And then they had all these laws that they had to observe, food they should eat, food they shouldn't eat, etc., etc., etc. So what Paul does in these first 10 verses, and if you go and do a study for yourself, just have a look. What Paul does in the first 10 verses is that he makes it plain to them. He's absolutely uh, ruthless in showing them that he preached a gospel that did not have any mixture of Judaism in it. He didn't add the gospel plus Judaism. He, makes, he goes to great lengths to show that he didn't do that. Because there were a group of people in the church called Judaizers who were determined that if Gentiles converted, they should get circumcised. And so that's why Paul points out in the first um, verses, he says, Titus was with me, and even though he was a Jew, I didn't force him to get, uh, he was a Gentile, I didn't make him get circumcised. He points that out. He's, he's absolutely clear. He's saying, I want you to understand the, this gospel that I, I preached. And he's Great pains, he goes to great pains to insist in his letter that, that there's not an outward sign that we need, but that there's an inward circumcision of the heart that needs to happen in all of us. Secondly, I want to say this. Paul knew that his doctrine wasn't going to be popular. <laughs> he knew it wasn't going to be popular with some. And he wasn't about being popular. He wanted to tell the people, this is the gospel of Jesus. He was deeply convinced of the grace of God in his own life, and he wasn't going to compromise for anybody, not even Peter, not even Barnabas. Peter had been with Jesus. He wasn't going to compromise. He wasn't going to give in to people who seemed to have more experience than he had. I mean, these people had lived and walked with Jesus for three years, and yet they'd fallen back onto old theology, incorrect theology. And Paul, this young man, comes to them, and he corrects them all. He says, basically, you should know better. This is not the gospel. 
Uh, I think that's, for me, don't you, wouldn't you agree that takes incredible courage to stand up and say, actually, nobody, you are missing it. Peter, you are missing it. It's not about the law and grace. It's about the grace of God. In fact, in verse 6, if you look carefully, it says, he goes to all the apostles and he says, I did not receive any addition to my understanding, revelation, and authority from them. In fact, they added nothing. <laughs> they added nothing in the understanding of the gospel. And he says, James, Peter, and John, once they had understood that Paul had been given grace to be an apostle, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. In other words, we welcome you as the fellow apostle that you are going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And for me, those first 10 chapters also just say this very simply, that the gospel is not something we can own. We are only those that are guardians or, or keepers of the gospel, and we proclaim Jesus faithfully. He will draw all men to him. All right? Verses 11 to 14. Just go and make some brackets around those verses. And this is the verse where it says, Paul opposes Peter to his face. He doesn't go and put something on the internet. So, oh, I disagree with this person. So I want to let you know. He goes to his face. This man who's been a foundation layer in the church, he goes to this man in his face and he says, I want to let you know, buddy, that you are wrong. And this is why you're wrong. I wish the church would be a bit more like that, where people go to each other and say, listen, I might agree, disagree with you, but this is why I disagree. Not behind people's backs. Huh? If we disagree, let's disagree openly. That's fine. But let's not go behind. So I've said this already, but Peter, he was forceful. If you read the Gospels, who's the spokesman of the, of, of the disciples? It's always Peter. I mean, he's the front-footed guy. He's the gregarious one. He's the center of attention. He's the, part, the party, uh, center of the party. And a little, little Paul. And he was little, we know that. He didn't see very well either. So he stumbles up to Peter. Can't really see him. He says, Peter, you're wrong. Man, what courage. The grace of God upon him. And why did he oppose him? Because he simply says this. He says, uh, you are not living up to what the gospel proclaimed. That the, law, the gospel taught by, that, that through the death of Jesus, the wall of partition, that wall that divided Jew and Greek, was done away with. It no longer existed, and that he was falling back onto that theology. The law of Moses was no longer in force because Jesus had come and the Holy Spirit had been given. This should be liberating for all of us. Verse 15, this great foundation statement of the Christian life. We are justified by faith. Justified by faith in Christ. And what does justified mean? It simply means this. Then when you're accused of something, some wrongdoing, and you are guilty of that wrongdoing, you stand condemned. And to be justified means that you have your name cleared, that you get away with it. You get off scot-free. Now that is good news if you've done something wrong. Okay? That you get off. And it makes sense if you were falsely accused, but the truth is, when God justifies us, He justifies us even though we are guilty and we deserve everything that we should walk into. Punishment, the wrath of God, the anger of God, all those things, we should walk into that because we are guilty and yet He justifies us. He says, I no longer see that for your life. Why? Because you have faith 
in Christ my son. Simply, that's the grace of God. Yes, I'm glad someone's saying amen because it's good news. It's simple. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the bedrock of our faith. And if that is the bedrock of our faith, it is foolish. It is absolutely unlogical, illogical to go back to any kind of rule or any kind of work to observe any kind of ceremony at all because it does away with the grace of God. It's not the gospel and the grace of God plus observing some things, plus eating the right food. As Michael said, you are free to eat bacon as much as you want because you are not under ceremonial law anymore. You're under grace. You can eat prawns and enjoy them. Come on, absolutely. This is the grace of God. No work of the law added to the gospel. Why? Because Jesus offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice for us. Thirdly, secondly, can I just point out under those verses, it says, Paul did not put any hope in the law. Didn't put any hope in the law, and he did not fear anything from the law. Can I just say to you, if you have a revelation of the the grace of God, there's no fear in your life? Because there's no punishment. Because why? The punishment that you deserve has been taken upon the cross on the cross of Christ, and he's taken your punishment for you. Amen. He's taken our punishment. And Paul says again, he strengthens his argument. He says this, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ the minister? In other words, the servant of sin. And if we believe that Christ has set us free from the law, what I want to just say to you, when you look at Paul's life, it doesn't produce in this man, Paul, a careless, lawless life. Please don't go down the road and think you can break the speeding regulations and say, oh, I'm under grace. You're going to pay. Please don't think that you can go and commit adultery and say, oh, I'm under the grace of God. The grace of God covers a multitude of sins. No, you can't. And what is is Paul saying? He says, if that's what you believe, you're actually making Jesus a minister of, of sin, a servant of sin. And you are saying that his death on the cross was to serve sin. No, no. His death on the cross was to do away with sin, to do do away with the logical conclusion of what it means, that death is the ultimate conclusion. And ultimately, Jesus does away with that on the power, by the power of the cross. Amen. Paul was inwardly motivated. He was inwardly devoted by the grace of God and the grace of the gospel. And so, If you're asking this question, can the doctrine of justification of faith without giving people any rules, can that encourage people into sin? And my argument would be to you, no, this verse makes it quite clear that is not possible. The law does nothing, but the grace of God enables us to say no to sin. The grace of God enables us to work hard because we are motivated by a place of grace, not the law. Walk in the Spirit deliberately, and you will fulfill the law accidentally. I want to say it again. There's nothing else in your life that you need but Jesus. Let the Spirit be the guide for your life. He won't lead you into sin. He won't lead you into lying. He won't lead you into adultery. He won't lead you into anger. He won't lead you into bitterness. He won't lead you into any of those things. Unforgiveness. The Spirit will not lead you into unforgiveness. Oh, man, 
The other thing that liberated me with, the, with Michael, just speaking on the Wednesday or the Friday night, just about love in the church. Just about love, motivated by the grace of God. We should be the most gracious, forgiving people on the face of the planet, giving people a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh chance. Why? Because we're motivated by the grace of God. And the same forgiveness that we claim from the cross for our own lives, we should be able to extend in bucket loads to other people who we disagree with, who don't see things in our way that we see them because the grace of God is upon us. That, for me, is the real test of where the grace of God is upon our lives. It's easy to get forgiveness for yourself from the cross, but how much do you extend that same forgiveness to others? that you don't agree with. And what third little thing out of this passage, and I'm going to try and finish in the next five minutes. We've received the Spirit. Amen? We've received the Spirit. That's the Paul gives that challenge in, in, in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 5. He argues the point. He says, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? He says, I preached Jesus to you. That's all I did. I lifted up Christ, and that's how you received the Holy Spirit. And uh, Michael pointed out that word, placarded. I lift up, lifted up Jesus. I placarded him. Like those big billboards you see on the freeway, he says, that's what I did. I lifted up Jesus, and all you saw was Jesus. And when you saw Jesus, when you had revelation of him, you felt the Spirit of God came upon you. Oh, that, was a ch that was just liberating for me. You don't have to come up to the front for some guru who's got special power to lay hands upon you. When Jesus is lifted up, the Holy Spirit will be poured out. In our worship time just now, if we lift Jesus up, I'm expecting that God will come upon all of us by the power of His Holy Spirit. And if you need healing, you'll receive healing. And if you don't need Jesus, the kindness of God will lead you to repentance. And you can come forward to the front without any any guru having anything to do with you, and you can repent because it's the Spirit of God that is calling you and wooing you, and you cannot help yourself because the Spirit of God is upon you. That's what I want. I'm sure that's what you want as well. That we would see this place transformed and filled by unsaved people coming because the Spirit of God is drawing them. Not any man, not any great speaker, but the Spirit of God is coming upon them. These lights... I'm seeing my spittle flash. <laughs> we have received the Spirit. Huh? Don't stand too close. We proclaim Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying to the Galatian church. They were already having an outpouring of Spirit. People were getting saved. There was praise. There was power. And he's saying, you foolish Galatians, don't go back. Don't go back. Peter, why are you going back? You keep on going back to your default setting, Peter, and your default setting is that you are Jewish. You don't need anything other than the grace of God. Let's go forward. And you know what? The Spirit of God, when He's upon you, the Spirit of God will enable you to do things that the law does not say you are obliged to do. What was Moses? He said, if someone comes and gouges out your eye, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, just respond to that person exactly the same way that they responded to you. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, no, when the grace of God is motivating your life, you will bless your enemies and you will pray for those that persecute you. You can't do that by the law. It's impossible. It's only the grace of God inside of you that enables you to to speak blessing on your enemies, for those that curse you, to love them. Man, that's power.
Well, I'm excited. And verse 20. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here Paul uses this picture of himself as a picture for all of us. And he describes the life of every Christian believer. He says the old self, the old man, is dead, crucified with Christ. The new self, the new man, is living. How? And by the grace of God, being allowed to flourish in our lives. So to believe in Jesus, for all of us who believe in Jesus this morning, means this, not only that we believe that he was crucified for me, that's right, Jesus was crucified for me, but we also believe that I am crucified with Christ. It is both of those, that he is crucified for me and I am crucified with him. In other words, when Christ died for us on the cross, he not only took the punishment from our sin, but he also destroyed the hold that sin has over me. Therefore, I don't indulge my old sinful nature anymore because it has no life, it has no power over me. It is dead. Reckon that true. It is dead. And I have taken on the nature of Christ. He's now alive in me, and I can enjoy all that that means. And what it actually means is that we so identify with Jesus and his death that we live in such a way that we allow the Holy Spirit to live through us. So can I just give you some things that I think might be helpful for us if we are going to live a crucified life with Christ, what that might mean. I've got six little things. I'll do them quickly. First thing I want to say is this, that if you want to live a crucified life, few people will understand. You're not going to have everyone applauding you from the sidelines and saying, well done, good and faithful. You want to live a life that serves Jesus. Well done, well done. We applaud you. In fact, no, they're going to laugh. Most people will. It doesn't make sense to the world. What does Hebrews 13 say, verse 12? It says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What happened? Jesus went outside the camp and he experienced rejection. It'll be the same for us. God will take us outside of our comfort zone and we're gonna be uncomfortable in some ways. And so what I mean practically is this. Maybe you've made some life decisions and some life choices because you've chosen to follow Jesus that people do not understand. For example, perhaps you've said no to a a job offer because you've wanted to spend more time with your family and the the people in the world, they don't understand that. They say, you're absolutely crazy. Well, no, it's because you are living a, a crucified life with Christ. Perhaps, You've uh, broken off an engagement with somebody because they weren't saved. And everyone else outside who's not saved thinks you are absolutely crazy to do that. What on earth did you do that for? Well, because you're living a crucified life with Christ. Like Paul, we need to be absolutely convinced of the gospel and not be swayed by the opinions of men. Can I say simply, number two, people will not understand. Some people will not understand. Number two, if you want to live a crucified life with Christ, perhaps, no, I'm not saying perhaps, kiss your will goodbye. Kiss your own agenda goodbye. Matthew 26, you know it well, verse um, 
36 to 46, talks, describes Jesus. He knows he's about to go into be crucified. He's in the garden. He's having this amazing wrestling time. He says, he says to his disciples, just pray with me for one hour. I keep falling asleep. And he, he's kind of like, what is the whole point of that? He's wrestling. He, the Son of God, is going through this wrestling where he knows that God's will for him is to die. And the, his humanity is wrestling with that, and it's painful. And it says, actually, the Scripture says that he drops, drops of blood. He's so, he's so intensely anguishing in his soul that there's blood, he dro- blood, no, sweats. What's the word? Sweats blood. As long as we cling to our own will, as long as we insist on our own will, the things that God has for us on a daily basis are frustrated. His will for us on a daily basis is frustrated if we keep on holding on to our will. And Jesus could only endure the cross, endure the cross because he saw the joy set before him. And because he saw the joy set before him, he could walk through that trial. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 2 says in verse 9. It says, It's written, what eye has seen, what ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Those things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. God has good things for every single one of you. He wants to give those to you. But something of our own will, our own will has to die so that his will for our lives can flourish and begin Produce fruit in our lives. Amen? Point number three. Kiss your dignity goodbye. Oh, no, not that one. I want people to like me. I do want people to like me. (sighs) That picture of Jesus on the cross, while he's hanging there, people are laughing, people are mocking, people are saying, Ah, you call yourself the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, bring yourself down from the cross. If you have great power, call the angels to deliver you right now. In that moment, he has to choose between his dignity or the will of God for his life. In that moment, he says, Lord, Father, my dignity is second to your will for my life. I embrace what you have for me right now, and that includes my dignity. Most undignified position to be on a cross, naked. So I want to say to you, as my friends this morning, that people can take your dignity. They can. And sometimes we have to walk through the shadow of, under the shadow of others. But in that moment, when you feel like that is true for your life, please remember this, that Psalm 91 verse 1, we've been singing it in the church recently, says this, those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge You are my strength. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's our Father in heaven that covers us and dignifies us. Point four. Kiss your rights goodbye. Kiss your rights goodbye. When someone dies, they no longer have any rights. Okay? When you are John Doe, all the rights that you had cease to be because why? Because you are dead. And Jesus was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We know that from the scripture. He could have spoken in his defense. He could have called down angels from heaven, as I said. And when we die, our old man dies, we cease to have those rights that the old man has. And so you, you might say, I have a right to be angry with my husband. 
He has treated me so badly. You might say to your wife, you have a, I have a right to be angry with you because you haven't fulfilled all those things that you said you were going to fulfill for me. And remember the promise that we made on our wedding day. You might have, feel like you have a right to be angry. Well, I want to say all those rights die when we come to Christ. And the only right that we have is as believers to be filled by the Holy Spirit and to be led by the Spirit of Christ that dwells in you. That right you do have. Point number five, and I'm nearly finished. I believe as we walk this walk of grace and we live from this point of inward motivation by the power of the Holy Spirit, that encounters with God are an essential part of the journey. Personal encounters for you along the journey, alone with God, are essential for you. Why do I say that? Well, I just had to get this in. Yesterday, Liverpool <laughs> beat a certain other team four goals to one. And what does Liverpool, what does the team sing all the time? And the only reason I'm saying this is because of what they sing. What do they sing? You'll never walk alone. You know, there's great truth to that. There's power when people walk together. But I want to say to you as believers, as children of sons and daughters of the Most High God, there are some things that you have to encounter God upon in, by yourself because there are some things you have to walk alone on in your life, just you and God. No one else can do it for you. You have to find in your own life when you are in the valley of decision, when you are in that, the, 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 walking through the shadow of death, it might feel like that upon your life. There are, there are some things in that place only you can encounter God for and only you can walk with God yourself because you no one else can walk that for you. I want to encourage you, friends. David said in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 that he found his strength in God. And for each of us, we have to find our strength in God. Not in others, not in other people. Point number six, death is painful. When you die, it's painful. When my mom died last year, that simple truth became most powerful in my life. When anyone dies, there's great pain for people. When people die, there's great pain. And sometimes when we have to choose the will of God above our own will, it's that point where your will and God's will are doing this, and you know you have to die. You know your choice has to die. There's only one way to describe it. It is absolutely, overwhelmingly, excruciatingly painful. It is. And we want some kind of narcotic. We want just the pain to go away. I want to say to you this, this morning, at that point, just because you've got pain in your life, don't avoid what God has for you just to get rid of the pain. Because then we're missing out on the most fruitful thing that God wants to do in us. So you're still with me. And lastly, because Jesus was forsaken, you will never be forsaken. Because Jesus was forsaken, you will never be forsaken. In many ways, Jesus identified absolutely and completely with us. The scripture says he went through every trial, every temptation. He never gave in to sin. He shares in our lives and our experiences. But there's one area where that's not true. Because he bore for us the full rejection on the cross because that he was taking all of the world's sin upon himself. He bore the full rejection from the Father on the cross. And he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he was separated from his Father and experienced the full rejection 
from the Father because of our sin. And because he experienced that full rejection on our behalf, God will never forsake you because Jesus has paid the price for that already. Now that is good news. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Because he was forsaken, you will never be forsaken. My friends, that is the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the simplicity of the gospel. This is what it's about. You don't need anything else in your life except Jesus. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need him upon us. We need him living in us. We need to be refreshed daily. And I'm going to ask the musicians to come now. We've got a good amount of time. We're going to break bread. I'm going to ask Rihanna to come as well. And she's just going to sing a song for us. It's about the freedom and the grace of God in our lives. I trust it will minister to you. And then I'm going to ask the musicians to, after that just to pick it up.